The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California legislature. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, we're going to talk about things like what everybody has heard about with Snowden and his revelations. But we're also going to talk about someone who who worked in the security and intelligence area for the government who has his own story. And he's written a book called Beyond Snowden, Privacy, Mass Surveillance, and the Struggle to Reform the NSA. So I am very excited to speak today with Timothy Edgar, who's a former national security and intelligence official himself. He also is a cybersecurity expert, a privacy lawyer, and a civil liberties activist. Uh, Edgar joined the American Civil Liberties Union uh, shortly before the terrorist attack of two, uh, September 11th, 2001. And he spent five years fighting in Congress against abuses in the war on terror. He left the ACLU to try to make a difference by going inside America's growing surveillance state. And this is a story he tells in Beyond Snowden, Privacy, Mass Surveillance, and the Struggle to Reform the NSA. Edgar has been profiled by CNN's Christine Amapour, and his work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, Foreign Affairs, and Wired. And he is a contributing editor to Lawfare, Hard National Security Choices. Tim was a law clerk to Judge Sandra Lynch from the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit, and he's he's a graduate of Harvard Law School and Dartmouth College, and he is in practice in beautiful Providence, Rhode Island. So thank you so much for joining us. We're really thrilled to have you, Tim. Sure. It's wonderful to be here, Mari. Yeah. And you can, I just want to tell my audience that they can find out more about you at our website at privacypiracy.org, where we've got a picture of your book, a picture of you, and also we link to the website brookings.edu beyond Snowden. And of course, people can also go to Amazon to find out more about the book. So let's start. First of all, why did you call this Beyond Snowden? And tell us a little about your story. Sure. Well, I was just struck by a lot of the parallels between Snowden's career and mine. Um, And part of it is to talk beyond Uh, that initial set of revelations back in 2013 and have a broader conversation about surveillance reform uh, in a digital age of mass surveillance. Um, So what I wanted to do basically is 
uh, tell a little bit about my own story, um, yes. how I went from being a civil liberties activist uh, after 9-11 at the American Civil Liberties Union uh, to working inside the government. Uh, I joined uh, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence uh, really around the time it got started in 2006. Uh, that was the late uh, Bush administration. Uh, and I learned about uh, a lot of these extraordinary mass surveillance programs the NSA was uh, operating in secret at the time. Uh, and tried to work um, to devise safeguards for them, uh, privacy safeguards from the inside of the intelligence community. I did that for about six years, including uh, a couple of years uh, at the White House under President Obama, um, and then left government in 2013. And uh, basically, very shortly before uh, Edward Snowden came forward with his uh, extraordinary revelations about U.S. government surveillance. And so this gave me an opportunity to talk about what I had done and, and more importantly, what the U.S. government has been doing um, really since 9-11 to build a massive surveillance apparatus um, that takes advantage of a lot of the digital data that's going around the world. And uh, what we do to protect privacy, um, what the U.S. government does to protect privacy, and uh, perhaps more importantly, where it falls short. Um, so that's the story that I try to tell in the book. Right. So so basically, what are you doing now, That now that you left the uh, ACLU? What kinds so of I, things are you doing? Sure. I, I teach at Brown University. That's mainly what I do. Um, I help lead our um, new cybersecurity degree program. We have an executive master's program in cybersecurity that we just launched last year, um, and we're now in our second cohort. Um, and I teach in that program, and also I teach a course on privacy and civil liberties uh, for Brown undergrads and, and grad public policy graduate students. Um, so that's what I mainly do, but I also work some in the private sector uh, advising uh, companies that uh, work in the privacy area. Right. So is it possible to have security and still respect the privacy of individuals? I think it absolutely is. And in fact, there are many ways in which uh, respecting privacy actually helps improve um, the way in which the U.S. government engages in surveillance and protects uh, and collects intelligence. Uh, and that's one of the key themes that emerges, not, not just from my book, but from the experience that we've had of the past uh, uh, several years since the Snowden revelations. Uh, what we've seen is that uh, programs of bulk collection and mass surveillance um, uh, are problematic in that they, uh, you know, they, the effectiveness of those programs depends a great deal um, on whether the government is able to uh, focus in on the right people uh, and collect the right information. Um, and that's where privacy protections actually can help uh, guide intelligence operations. Um, and oversight is particularly helpful in looking at programs that may have started with the best intentions, um, but uh, if you really put them to the test and see whether or not they've been effective, um, sometimes we find that they have produced important results, and other times we haven't. Um, uh, that's, that's what happened really after the Snowden revelations began in, in 2013. Uh, it's one reason why in the book um, and in other places, I've you know, basically said that 
you know, I've agreed with uh, some of our intelligence officials who basically have acknowledged Snowden's revelations may have, you know, caused some short-term pain uh, to the intelligence community, but they've also helped us, help the U.S. government uh, have a more effective and a more legally sustainable collection apparatus. And he's actually promoted reforms um, that were extremely useful, uh, not just to protecting privacy, but also to improving uh, some of our intelligence capabilities when it came comes to reforming those programs. Yeah, it seems to me that when they're just collecting everything about everybody, and it, it, there's no way to really zero in. They have so much information that you can't find, you know, the, the tree in the forest, right? That's part of the problem. Um, you need to have a, a way to focus your attention, the attention of your analysts on uh, people that are really potentially posing a threat. Um, and one way to do that is to use legal standards like probable cause or reasonable suspicion mm-hmm. um, that we're very familiar with as lawyers. Uh, but one of the things that they do is they help to sort out and get rid of irrelevant information. Um, and, and, you know, there are times when the U.S. government, you know, ends up collecting huge amounts of information because that really is the only way they can make the uh, connections that they're trying to make. Um, but I think it's always important that we take those kinds of programs and put them to a test of effectiveness. And that's really the key type of analysis that uh, we didn't have uh, enough of before the Snowden revelations. Um, when I worked in government, um, you know, my job was really to ensure that the rules and the laws were being followed. I felt like, you know, there was somebody else whose job it would be to see how effective these programs were. And, and I think I was wrong in, in thinking that. I, I think I fell down on the job by not focusing more of my attention on putting the government's programs to an effectiveness test and seeing you know, just how, how many terrorist attacks have we actually prevented using the intelligence gleaned from this program. Sometimes uh, the answer is, you know, some significant number. Uh, other times, uh, if we look more closely at it, we see we already had this kind of information from other sources, and we didn't need to engage in the collection that we did. Right, right. So, you know, when we when we think about this, the whole Snowden revelation, there are people who think that Snowden was a total hero, and that he revealed things that people really need to know about, that that the government may have lied to us about what they were really collecting and that we were all under, you know, this hypnosis, not understanding. And then there are other people who really think that he was, you know, really doing a great work or he was a real traitor. So um, what do you say to that? Well, I take, I take that debate and I explore it at length in the book. And, and part of the reason I do that is that I don't see it in those black and white terms. And I think there are a lot of uh, Americans who resist that. And they resist it for a good reason, uh, which is that it seems to make us have to choose between our privacy and our security. And I don't think we should have to make that choice. In general, my, my goal is to make it possible for the government to reform itself from the inside. You know, a lot of those folks who say that Snowden was a traitor, basically make the argument that if Snowden had been concerned about the impact of mass surveillance on privacy, 
he really should have made those concerns known through the inside, through the system, rather than by going uh, to reporters um, and leaking classified information. And I completely agree that that would be a much better system because it doesn't put our sources and methods at risk in the way that these classified leaks did. Right. Um, but, but the sad truth is that it wasn't as effective a strategy. And, and I know that it wasn't as effective because I did it. Uh, for six years, I basically <laughs> served. I basically served as something like an official Snowden. Um, right, my right. job, my job, and and I was, you know, I was at the White House. I was advising the Director of National Intelligence. I was at a pretty top level. Unlike a, you know, twenty-nine year old um, uh, Booz Allen contractor, uh, I had, I actually had access to senior officials, and I could make those concerns known, and I did. Uh, and we made some improvements in the programs, and I've discussed those in the book. You know, I'm proud of the work that we did. Uh, but we didn't have anything like the kind of conversation uh, that we had after 2013. Uh, the public, uh, not even on the inside, but, but certainly the public was not included in, in, a, in a real uh, way to discuss the scope of the programs that we were really running and, and what the impact was on privacy and whether we could do better. Uh, so I have a whole series of recommendations in the book uh, about improving transparency, about improving accountability, and about improving our privacy protections uh, so that, you know, the next time uh, somebody comes along, uh, my, my hope is that the government will have adopted some of these reforms and um, another Snowden won't be needed to blow the lid on uh, our mass surveillance state. I, I think the jury is still very much out as to whether we, uh, you know, whether whether we've actually done enough to make those reforms. Um, I, I think we have a lot further to go. Tim, did you ever feel like what you were saying fell on deaf ears? And did you ever feel like you would like to, you know, be like Snowden. Of course, that happened after you were there. But um, did you ever feel like, gee, I I'm not really getting it across or what? Well, I, you know, in, in all honesty, there were certainly times, especially um, in the initial few years when I had learned of some of these programs where I was uh, tempted um, to, you know, become a whistleblower. Right. Um, there were a whole variety of reasons why I didn't do that. Um, uh, some of them personal. I, you know, I didn't want uh, to take the risk to myself and my family. Right. Uh, but some, most of them were really because I had made a commitment to, um, to the, the folks that I worked with. Um, they were taking a chance on hiring somebody like me. You know, this is mm -hmm. the Bush administration. This was a pretty big deal yeah. uh, for them to have taken a chance on hiring an ACLU lawyer. Right, to come right. in and, you know, give, give him a, a top-secret clearance, uh, give him full access to what the NSA was doing, and ask his advice. And I kind of felt, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to give them my unvarnished advice. Uh, I'm not going to pull punches there, um, but I'm going to give this a shot um, because they're giving me a shot. Um, so I felt like I was in a somewhat different position. I mean, I right. felt like, like, you know, people were hearing what I had to say. Were they actually making changes? Well, in some cases, yes. We put in some important improvements in oversight of uh, these programs, uh, and we put them under a stronger legal foundation. I, 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 helped, uh, I helped the government take some of these mass surveillance programs that started under Bush as 
you know, warrantless wiretapping and, and you know, completely outside uh, any con control or oversight of the um, judicial branch and very limited oversight by the congressional branch, um, we put them under uh, fairly detailed uh, oversight of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Um, so we did some important improvements there, but I don't think we made anywhere near the kind of um, reforms that have happened in the last three or four years since the Snowden revelations began in 2013. Yeah. Okay. With regard to the FISA court, um, there really isn't any back and forth like there is in court, like where you've got, you know, a plaintiff and a defendant or, or you know, a prosecutor and the defense attorney. There really wasn't um, that kind of interplay, or there isn't still, is there in the FISA court that, that, there is evidence heard on both sides. It's usually just evidence heard on one side, and the FISA judge makes that decision. Am I so correct? I, I have a, yeah, I have a whole chapter on the FISA court, and, and, and one reason I wrote that chapter is that, to me, it's a, uh, a, a terribly misunderstood process. It, it, its function is to serve, uh, to protect our civil liberties by interposing a judge between the decision of the government to put someone on surveillance and and actually doing that. Um, in practice, uh, you know, I'd say that the, the results have been somewhat mixed. But here is an example of a Snowden reform. Um, after the Snowden revelations, there was a lot of talk in um, the White House, and including by President Obama himself, hey, maybe we should have some outside lawyers to contest the government's arguments to improve the quality of decision-making at the FISA court. Right. Um, and and a, a version of that proposal was adopted in legislation that Congress passed in 2015 called the USA Freedom Act um, that requires the court, if they think there's a significant issue of law, to appoint an amicus, an amicus curiae, friend of the court, to argue uh, basically the other side from the government's position. And they've appointed a, a panel of five amici now uh, that includes some of the finest national security lawyers in the country, um, uh, including both former government officials as well as uh, civil libertarian-minded uh, academics um, to make those arguments. So this is a reform that I do not, that would not have happened uh, absent the Snowden revelations. Uh, and it's an example, in my mind, of, you know, where if you just catalog some of the changes that were made after 2013, um, you're looking at some pretty substantial reforms, especially as, as, as we look over time. Now, uh, one important area where they're, they're, they haven't acted yet, and I've recommended um, in the book that they do take action, is that they get more technological, uh, technical expert technical assistance at the FISA court. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think they're taking some steps in that direction, but uh, this is critical. Uh, so many of these surveillance issues in, in the 21st century are, are highly complex. Yeah. And you can't expect, you know, a, a, life, a, a federal judge with lifetime tenure uh, to have anywhere near the right expertise to be able to really ask the kind of probing questions of the government lawyers um, and government technical experts that, that he or she needs to do. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot more reform of the FISA court that should happen, but we're already seeing some important reforms with the appointment of 
of these friends of the court, and, and I'm hoping to see more with uh, possible technical experts in the future. Oh, that's great. Let me ask you something, though. It, it, it isn't automatic. In other words, the judge has to ask for the amicus curiae brief? Or... Well, yeah, this was a big source of discussion <laughs> yeah. uh, when Congress was, was debating the reform proposal. Um, the standard that the bill basically says is the court shall appoint an expert if the court determines that there mm-hmm. are significant questions of interpretation of law. The court has the option, if it makes that finding of, for whatever reason, not appointing an expert. So it's still pretty much up to the court. Um, but, you know, federal judges, when they're given a command that basically says this is the standard, are, are usually pretty good at applying that standard. And in fact, they have announced on several occasions that they're appointing uh, amiki, uh, friends of the court. They've also done a much better job of publishing opinions. Um, this mm-hmm. is, again, uh, one of the major uh, outcomes of the Snowden revelations was not just that Snowden himself had leaked a bunch of documents, um, but that the government, in defending its surveillance practices, uh, went on kind of this charm offensive where they dumped a huge amount of what had previously been very highly secret information on the public record. In fact, they created a website called I See on the Record in, in hmm. order to disclose some of this information. Um, th- this was, you know, th- this was a big sea change in the way the government um, uh, uh, operates when it comes to legal issues around surveillance policy. Um, And and again, a lot of these reforms, I think, have, uh, you know, were much more significant than than people may have realized at the time that they were made. Right, right. I I just wonder, you know, the uh, the ordinary citizen or even like we're sitting here on the campus of the University of California, and I, I don't even really know about the ordinary citizen, if they understand really what was brought to light with this mass surveillance by NSA, can you just kind of do a brief kind of sure. uh, overview? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, the the quick answer is that if you buy my book, you'll you'll understand. Uh, that was actually the that was actually one of the main reasons I wrote the book. Well, let's just say the name of it. Were, <laughs> let's say the name of it again. It's, Beyond it's, Snowden, uh, yeah, privacy, yeah. mass surveillance, and the struggle to reform the NSA. I want to do that so people kind of know because not everybody really, you know, they're so busy with their lives they really don't even know what the whole issue was. So go ahead. Sure. Absolutely. No, no, that that very much was why I wanted to write the book, uh, because I think people were fascinated with this, the personal story of Snowden. Um, but I think it's it's tough sometimes to understand the the real nature of the revelations that he brought forward. But but really what he sh- what he showed uh, and and something that that I had known and people inside the government had known for many years, and that is that um, our digital age has enabled a new kind of surveillance, mm-hmm. uh, what, what I in the book call mass surveillance, mm-hmm. on a global scale. And that means uh, basically uh, vacuuming up huge amounts of data and then um, using that data to gain insight around intelligence targets. Um, and, you know, this, this, uh, this change really has a lot to do with uh, both with three trends. One is um, after 9-11, the threat of international terrorism. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, one is the increasing global nature of our world, both uh, our lives and um, our telecommunications and our data. And the third is just the increasing digital nature of our world. And you put all that together and, you know, our laws, which primarily were focused on preventing the kind of domestic spying that we think of when we think of maybe J. Edgar Hoover uh, and when he had uh, wiretapped civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King. You know, back in in those analog days, uh, we put in place uh, distinctions between domestic spying and foreign spying, uh, between intelligence and law enforcement, distinctions that really don't make a whole lot of sense in the 21st century. And the results um, over the past uh, really decade and a half, more than decade and a half since 9-11, has been a sea change in in terms of our privacy um, that comes from uh, the fact that we are just much more likely to have our data uh, vacuumed up by intelligence agencies all over the world, including our own. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we were, you know, I think that the people who work for the intelligence community understood that. They understood the implications of what they were doing, but secrecy made it very difficult to have that conversation. And the transparency that we've seen in the last few years, um, largely as a reaction to the Snowden revelations, has given us an opportunity, an opportunity to really talk about the implications of mass surveillance in the 21st century. Uh, and to make some modest baby steps of reform that I talk about in the book. And and I hope it's the beginning of a much broader, comprehensive discussion about how do we control surveillance in a digital age, a global age of mass surveillance. Mm. So what do you see happening in 2018 in in terms of surveillance and civil liberties from the people that you speak with, what do you think is happening with this administration and what's going on? Well, the immediate thing that's happening is that a major part of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which uh, involves two programs, Snowden Revealed, PRISM, and Upstream Collection, uh, is uh, being debated right now in Congress. Uh, That provision, called Section 702 of FISA, will expire on January 19th. Uh, It was supposed to have expired at the end of last year, but Congress uh, gave themselves a few extra weeks to work on it. Um, And most likely, Congress will renew this provision, will renew this surveillance program, uh, but with some additional protections. And the big debate in Congress is how far those protections should go. Uh, There are already, I think, agreement on more transparency, uh, on some reforms to the way in which that database is used to identify Americans um, when you when the government wants to search uh, that data that's collected uh, for American names. Um, some people like Ron Wyden and other privacy-minded uh, senators and congressmen would like to go further and impose a warrant requirement before the government can search that database for the names of Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that debate's going to, you know, probably be wrapped up this month or, you know, possibly it'll be postponed again. Um, and and uh, bro- on a broader scale, I think that um, 
the Trump administration is a very interesting one because, you know, we were really afraid. I, I think a lot of people in the civil liberties community and a lot of people in the national security community were afraid uh, that there was going to be a potential sort of catastrophic uh, authoritarian uh, Trump administration that was going to just sweep away a lot of these civil liberties and constitutional protections based on Trump's uh, extreme rhetoric during the campaign. Um, in the last year or so, what we've seen is something maybe a little different. Uh, maybe what we've seen more is more um, uh, instability and uncertainty from, you know, the fact that the Trump uh, White House and Trump himself uh, appear to be kind of at war with their own intelligence community, with uh, the Justice Department and Robert Mueller over uh, the Russia uh, investigation. And, um, you know, how that all shakes out, I think, is going to influence uh, the surveillance debate, already has influenced the surveillance debate in, in surprising ways. I mean, we saw last year with Trump's kind of bizarre accusation that he had been personally wiretapped by the Obama administration, uh, already affecting the debate yeah. in Congress over NSA surveillance um, with some of Trump's supporters basically saying, well, I, I don't want to renew or expand the NSA surveillance authority if I'm worried it might be abused by people that I think are not are out to get Trump. Yeah, so um, I'm going to have to stop you. This is this we're going to have sure. to talk again because that's uh, an exciting thing. So I just want to give the name of your book, Beyond Snowden, Privacy, Mass Surveillance, and the Struggle to Reform the NSA. And your website is brookings.edu, Beyond Snowden. And thank you so much. We will, we will definitely stay in touch and keep up the great work. We will have you back again. Thanks a lot. It was great to be on, Mark. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 